Today we are participating in what some have called our best day. We've been talking, if you've been at Rock Creek the last few weeks, about walking humbly with our God, acting justly, loving mercy, and today is a day when it becomes apparent as we listen to the scriptures that God is actually interested in retuning a world, to use an image given to me by a good friend and Professor Reggie Kidd. He's retuning the world as it has gotten in a state of discord, that in a way you could understand injustice, the, the wrongness that has vandalized all that's good in the world as this creation being out of tune. You feel it in your bones in the same kind of way as if you were watching American Idol or America's Got Talent and some well-meaning and eager person gets up on that stage and starts to sing, only no one in their lives loves them. And they, as Charlie Daniels might say, let out a yell that'd curl your hair. But every now and again, someone sings. Some little girl, timid and meek, steps to the stage, her body diminutive, her face innocent. Not much is to be expected, and she opens her mouth, and out comes these radiant, room-reverberating words that, that instantly bring smiles to the judges' faces, and people are astonished and slack-jawed. How does such a word, how does such a voice come out of such a tiny little person? When we hear something that's in tune, when we hear something that's this beautiful, it can't help but move us. And the resurrection is God's emphatic declaration that he is indeed retuning the world. That it has begun and he will continue With it. But now we live in a time of overlap where he started the retuning, but also things are badly in a state of discord. I wrote this little poem in honor of it just to give a sense because you understand what your own life is like a ruptured appendix, a ruptured spleen, a ruptured relationship. You know what I mean. A splinter in your foot, splintering at work. You'd feel sorry for your boss's splintered Achilles if he weren't such a jerk. Intestines inflamed, swollen membranes, allergies make head hurt with such pain. On Friday night, we had a good Friday service, and this is a metaphor for what our life is like. You want to participate in good things with people that you adore and Ander wasn't feeling well, so Kathy had to stay home with them. And as we were leaving, one of you asked my son, Kaylor, where's your mom? And he said, oh, he's at home with Ander. And one of the other moms, Debbie Lancaster, who was listening, said, she's at home with anger? That's happened to me sometimes, too. For those of you who don't know, our son's name is Ander, as in Eric Alexander. But it's funny because sometimes we are at home with anger. 
In fact, sometimes maybe that's all that's in our home. And sometimes it's, we're at home with anxiety. And sometimes it's at home with uncertainties. And sometimes it's at home with a kind of listlessness and nothing tastes. And all of it is a kind of out of tuneness that the world has gotten in that Jesus means to repair. Here's what the Apostle Paul would have you consider on this our best day about the, the discordant notes that come out of your life, that come out of your work, that come out of your family. The first thing is a simple point. It should be memorable. And it should be something that your life can be based on. It is simply this. Your faith is meant to be useful. That's profound, I know. I know. I'm a philosopher. Your faith is meant to be useful. Incredibly useful. Something that you can stand on. Something that helps you today. Something that softens and pads the ailments that will visit you tomorrow. Something that gives you hope in the face of the most suffocating kind of darkness. Your faith is meant to be useless. In the words before Kim read, Paul says, I didn't ask her to read this. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel, which is the good news, not advice. Something has happened. The Bible is very emphatic about that. Something has happened. It's not just a piece of advice that they think is cute and hopefully you'll take it to yourself. You pick. Like a presidential candidate, they're saying, no, something has happened in the universe. The gospel which I preach to you, which you have received and on which you have taken your stand. He's imagined that this news has become the kind of air, the kind of music that the people who believe it can start to use on themselves. It's the kind of headphones that they can put on to remind them of music when all around them is screeching voices. By this gospel, he says, you're saved by this news. This news means that all can be well with you. That on the other side of your death, when judgment is to come, that judgment can be averted and you can live now knowing it will never be yours. If you hold firmly to this word that I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. He has a strong sense that your faith is to be so useless, useful, that if you you don't have this doctrine of resurrection, that it's actually going to be useless. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Now, in the Greek, first importance means the thing that's important first. That's a joke. Thank you. It means the same thing it means here. The thing that's most important. Putting first things first. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. We celebrated that on Friday together. This notion that has been embedded and engraved into the inner lives of the people of Israel that someone has to pay whenever there is an infraction against God. That all the disharmony in the world isn't just bad singing. It's a catastrophic disorder against God that God himself has seen to it to fix. When there is sin, there must be death. And we're told that Jesus has become our scapegoat. The one you can say, you know what? There's a lot in me that is blameworthy. 
I'm a great burden to myself. There's much in me that could make me blush. That would make me want to hide in shame if you shame if you posted my life on a video camera for the world to see. If you YouTubed me so that anybody could put me on the Google box and find me. And they could see my life as it were. There are awful things there. And even if I manage to hide most of it from everyone, if someone is peering down into my life, I'm in trouble. Except Paul says, not anymore you're not. Because there's one you can put the blame on. There's a scapegoat that you can take all the nastiness and you can say, here, I hand it over to you. And he says, here, I'll take it. And I hand you instead the sterling beauty of my life. I'll take the cross, you get the flowers. Christ died for our sins. He was buried, that's important, and then he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then after that, see, the apostle knows your faith is meant to be useful, but it's not meant to be baseless. This is a great encouragement for any of you who find yourself in sullen moments of doubt. Because if you're believing the Christian faith rightly, what will happen to you, what should happen to you from time to time, because you are not having any of your belief corroborated by the outer world around you, nobody who's doing anything important is acting as if any of this matters. Well, that's an understatement. Huh. No, it's an overstatement. But you should have moments where you say, is this really true? We worship a king who was killed, and he got up, and that started a new creation, and he's promised now that everybody's going to get up, and that we're going to live forever in a life of the world to come, and that now we have this personal presence of this king, this benevolent rule of his that's set up in our own lives. Is this really true? Does it matter to listen to him, to disobey myself in order to obey him? Does it really matter to do this? And what's so very hopeful and helpful, what's so very useful about your faith is that it has a base. The apostle can say, look, I just want to remind you, we're not merely asking you to believe something that some guy named Jimmy saw by himself. And he said, hey, everybody, this is awesome. I had a dream last night and I met Jesus. Now everybody can. This isn't dream stuff. He says after he got up, he appeared to Peter. And then he appeared to the twelve, which is the apostles. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. Most of whom are living, though some have fallen asleep. A point he makes in this document that was written about 20 years after the resurrection to say, hey, if you want to go ask somebody about this, you can. A lot of people met him. They ate some fish with him because, you know, he had a body. And he ate fish after he was resurrected. He was trying to be lean. He was staying off carbs. And then he appeared to James, and then to the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me as one abnormally born. Oh, what a comfort it is. As N.T. Wright would say, you know, there was an interesting thing in the first century that was so so compelling and so interesting historically to think about. That there were 10 or 12 messianic movements that happened in a 200-year span, 50 years on either side of the first century. So 50 years before the first century, then the whole first century, which is 100 years if you don't do the math very well, and then 50 years after that, there were 10 or 12 messianic movements 
where you had some guy who came around claiming to be the Christ, to be the Messiah. And people would rally behind him. He would preach about the kingdom of God. That God was going to set up his rule and he was going to conquer his enemies. He was going to provide salvation. He was going to provide deliverance. He was going to be the cure for what ails you. The problem was in all of those movements except for one, here's how the authorities dealt with them. They pretended like they were a little bug and that they were a little boy and they went... (laughs) They squashed them. They killed them. They snuffed them out. And you know what happened in every single time when the leader was snuffed out? The movement died. It just died. You either had to find a new Messiah or you had to take up drinking. But in this one instance, in this one instance in this messianic movement, the leader died. And the movement didn't get stamped out and the people didn't take up drinking. They became bold. And the movement morphed. And we're talking about it today. You don't know who any of those other messianic movements were led by, do you? Maybe not. Maybe you know about Barabbas because you've read the Gospels once. But you don't know about any of those, but we know about this one because it's true, you see. And the Bible wants you to know it's true. Your faith has a basis. You look back when you're feeling discouraged and you think, is this really true? Oh yes, he actually got up. And anybody who gets up from the grave after promising to purge you of your sins and then offering you new life and then he actually gets up, you ought to listen to him. But if it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can somebody say there's no resurrection of the dead? There's no resurrection of the dead Then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised... Our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Do you see how important he thinks the resurrection is? He says, if Christ, in all the ways we've just been singing, has not trampled over death by death, if he has not been raised bodily from the dead and all these people didn't see him, then your faith has no content and it has no purpose and you're really silly And I don't know why you're standing in this room where it's so freaking hot. It's hot. And that's what the apostle would say. What? Go home to your air conditioning. If he's not raised. See, Christians put a whole lot of emphasis on this. This is a unique character in human history. His death was the pivot point of human history. His resurrection was the start of a new world. If only for this life we have hope in this Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Do you see how important the Apostle wants you to know that your faith is? It's meant to help you deal, first of all, with this inner reality called the gunkiness, to be technical, of your rebellions, of your failures, of not coming through when you should have, All the things you're afraid of other people finding out about, it says Christ has taken all that. Unless he's not raised from the dead. And if he's not raised from the dead, then he was just a guy, like your friend Nigel, who said, Hey, I'm going to die for your sins. And then he dies, and then that's that. And you're like, well, how do I know he died for my sins? What power does he have? 
But if all of a sudden Nigel were raised from the dead and he was claiming to be the son of God, you might start thinking there's something to this guy, Nigel. Your sins are taken away because Christ is raised. You also have a king. This is part of why your faith is so important. It gives you, it gives you a rule and an order for your life in order to make good things run wild in it. You're not led in the dark by yourself and you're not stuck following your own silly nose. The apostle says that this king has been handed over all the authority on earth. He's ruling over everything presently. You know, see, this list in one place said when men are not allowed, and he mean, by men he means men, not just kidding. By men he means everybody. When men are not allowed to adore kings, they will instead worship Movie stars and millionaires and athletes. That's a pretty prescient statement. You need a king. You need a king. Are you going to be stuck with Stephen Curry and Kim Kardashian? Stephen Curry's pretty awesome. Kardashian, I don't know. Jay-Z said, I sit on the hill in Brazil and worship Christ the Redeemer. But most kids just worship us. Beyonce's husband knows some stuff because they got no king. Because most people don't think the resurrection's true, and if they do, they're not living as if it's true. As if there is a risen Savior and Lord who holds life in his hands, who has conquered death so you'll never taste it, who has purged you clean and has said, You can live forever with me in a new world. Your faith is meant to be useful and he gives you resources even now today in it. And he lets you know that your life isn't throwaway. Isn't it interesting when Jesus dies, he's raised in a body that's very similar to the one he had, but it's transformed. God has uh, reduced and reused and recycled. He didn't just throw his life away and say, eh, bodies are gross. I hate all this stuff I made. Flowers, they're icky. Those mountains that I thought up, what was I thinking? They're so ugly. God loves the world that he made. It's important to remember this. God thinks this place is fantastic. If you ever get your breath taken away by it, if you ever hear music that moves you, if you ever see something that stirs you, if you ever watch a moment and tears are brought to your eyes, that's because those same things happen to God. He thinks it's fantastic. He says, yay! That's what delighting in things is. But he doesn't like a vandalized creation that's been burglarized. It's been pillaged. It's been used up. And he doesn't like that to happen to his people. And so the promise is that what he's going to do is recycle us. He's going to renew us. There's going to be some kind of continuity with the us that we are. Only way better. This faith is meant to be useful to you. And if it's going to be useful, one of the things you've got to know is you've got to know the Miyagi principle. Do you know Mr. Miyagi? Pat Morita, you might know him as. In 1984, a, a stunning and boyishly faced Ralph Macchio played Daniel. 
He was 26-year-old playing a 16-year-old. He's going to be in Karate Kid uh, 12, the man doesn't age. He's 62 years old now. He's going to play an 18-year-old. I made up all of that. But he moves from New Jersey in a cruel summer. Some of you are uh, hip. And his mom and he move into an apartment where the faucet is leaking. So he goes down to the maintenance man. The maintenance man is Mr. Miyagi in his little office. He has on a, a bandana. He has chopsticks of some sort, and he's trying to catch a fly unsuccessfully. But he's focused. He's concentrated. He is irked and irritated by Daniel's presence. Daniel asks him. Uh, can you come fix the faucet in our apartment? It's leaking. Aye, he says. That's all he says, aye, which I think means yes. Uh, when, when do you think you might do it? After, he says. After. Uh, after when? After, after, he says. That's when. After, after. That's when. One of the things the Apostle Paul wants you to know that will help your faith, it will help you know your life's not throwaway, that you have a king, that your sins have been taken care of, but we live in this time where we hope for what God's going to do after, after. Which is to say, as, as uh, N.T. Wright has said, we often think that the Bible, when it promises us eternal life, that it's talking about life after death, but the New Testament talks way more about life after, life after death. What? Did your head just start hurting? Or he'll say, heaven is great, but it's not the end of the world. We say sometimes, they've gone to heaven. They're, they're home. But the Bible wants to say, no, 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 they're not home. Because home is earth that God loves. He's going to overlay earth with heaven. They're in paradise. But what God's going to do is actually raise your physical body. There's going to be a two-stage after-death process, just like there was for Jesus. What happens to him happens to you. If you suffer and you're his, you'll suffer. And you know what happened? He died on a Friday. He was raised on a Sunday. And Paul says this, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, Adam, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But in each his own turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. In other words, he's saying that once you die, and once anybody who is in Christ dies, there are other places in the Bible that tell us that that we go to heaven, we are in paradise, but what we look forward to, if you've ever been to a, A well-done funeral, they'll say, ensure and certain hope of the resurrection of the dead. We look forward to what happened in Jesus happening to us and to all our loved ones. My friend Reggie has said, at Yellowstone National Park, there's a geyser called the Beehive Geyser. Maybe some of you have seen it before. Maybe you've seen Old Faithful, but the Beehive Geyser has this gigantic explosion of water from the earth. But before that ever happens, there's a little tiny stream, a little tiny geyser right beside it, an indicator geyser. And see, nobody knows when the beehive geyser, as magnificent as it is, they never know when it's going to happen, except when that little tiny one goes off. You can, you can Google this on the box there and find it. 
this thing starts to go up. It's just this little tiny indicator. But when the indicator comes, the big geyser is always going to go off. And so when this little indicator starts coming out of the ground, this little stream of water, and they put on the loudspeakers in the park. The employees say, the indicator is coming. The beehive geyser is about to go off. Stop what you're doing and come watch it. Stop what you're doing and come look and see. And if you watch this on a video, you'll see suddenly, at some point after this little tiny indicator, there's this massive flow of water that just bursts out of the ground and it goes higher and higher and higher with more and more force wetting the world around it. It's magnificent. And Paul says when Jesus got up from the dead, what Jews always thought was going to happen at the end of time Jews thought there was going to be a general resurrection when, Jesus, when God came to judge the earth at the end of time. And all of a sudden they thought, oh no, the indicator's gone off. Jesus is the indicator, meaning that there's a great geyser of resurrection happening. That what was supposed to happen at the end has already started. The end has already begun. The new world has already started. The remaking of things, the renewal of things, the refashioning of the image of God has happened because Jesus has defeated the final enemy of death. Don't you let anybody tell you that death is part of life. Death is a perversion of life. It's the enemy of life. It's not part of God's good intention. If you are someone who hates death, if you hate loss, if you hate grief, then you should be on Jesus' side. Because he hates it. And he's the only one in history who's ever done a thing about it. He let his hatred of it lead him to it and pinned it to the ground and he undid it so he can say, whoever believes in me will never see death. Even though he dies, yet he will live. Whoever trusts me, he says, will never experience death. How does that work? I don't know. But that's what he says. So you got him offering to the thief on the cross that in the intervening time before his own resurrection as he's being crucified for things he did. As the other thief is mocking Jesus. And he says, don't you fear God? We're getting our just penalty. This man has done nothing. And Jesus says, today I tell you. When the man says, please remember me when you come into your kingdom, he says, today I tell you, you'll be with me in paradise. It takes some of the sting out of death to know that there is some kind of embodied, intermediate paradise that we're in. And then one day, all of us will be resurrected unless we happen not to have died before he returns. And physical bodies and some kind of renewal in the place will be fantastic. How will it all work? Well, we may talk about that in the coming weeks. I don't know. But we're told Noah has seen. No mind has conceived what God has in store for those who love him. After, after. Your faith is meant to be useful and it's meant to tell you that the end has started and that God is reclaiming the earth. And lastly this, God has better aspirations for your life than you do. That's a surprise to most of us. And it's something that's very hard to believe, I know. 
Because we have things that we want to have happen. We have things that we want to change. We have things that we wish could be undone. We have aspirations for our lives, for our kids' lives that we wish would come true. And we can't make them come true and it drives us nuts. But the apostle has this strong sense that this life of ours is going to have every bad part of it made up to us. He says if it's only for faith, if only in this life we have hope in Christ, we're pitiful. I like it that the Bible's honest like that. It doesn't say if you believe in Jesus in this life, you're suddenly never going to have to go to the dentist again. If you believe in Jesus in this life, you will not go bald. And you won't gain 20 pounds when you look at a donut funny. If you believe in Jesus, you'll never lose your job. If you believe in Jesus, everyone will trust you. If you believe in Jesus, you'll never hurt your knee. If you believe in Jesus, you'll never have any conflict in your life. It says, if you believe in Jesus, and this life is it, you're a sucker. You're pitiful. Why does it say that? Because it knows that we live in a world that's out of joint. And that we're the new creation people. That we're trying to live according to the standards of the new world in a world that doesn't appreciate it. So we're trying to maintain a sexual ethic that nobody around us thinks is worthwhile. We're trying to do weird things like stop being busy all the time so we can pray to the resurrected Christ to help bring about a future that he has not seen fit to bring about yet. Everybody else thinks that's lazy. We're people who want to care for children that no one else is caring for and care for the poor that no one else cares for. We're people who want to give away our money and not merely hoard it. We are people who do things weird like forgive and fight for reconciliation and disobey ourselves to obey God and all of that, including the fact that there's just a lot of screeching around us and smelly, stinky things means that some part of this life ain't going to go so well, but Paul says... You're pitiable in this life, but you're going to do some kind of rejoicing in the one to come. And unfortunately, for some of us, we're like, really, that's all you got? Well, no, that's all you got. He also promises his spirit. He also promises life and life to the full, that there's some way, some resource to make it through the darkness. You have each other to help you through the darkness. You have the melody of the Holy Spirit Shedding abroad in your heart the love of Christ. It's available to anyone who will hold out their hands and say, please fill me, I want to be yours. God's aspirations are better than yours are. And if you listen to them, parts of your life should seem pitiable to others. You may not have as good a car as other people. Or as good of a house. You may not have as, as much fun as other people. Because you're too busy caring about others and discaring about yourself. Discaring is a word I just made up. But that's because you're listening to the resurrected Christ and you're working to bring about new creation. You're taking this attitude among yourself. In World War II, apparently there were, there were men who flew in these bombers over Germany, and one of the things that their, their job was to do was to hit these munitions plants where, where guns and ammunition and vehicles for the war machine of Germany were being made, and they would bomb these. And so there was heavy anti-aircraft artillery being shot 
at these planes. They, had, they sustained the most casualties in the war, apparently. The Elmer Bindener, which if you're looking for a name, kids, Elmer Bindener was a B-17 navigator during World War II, and he tells this story about a bombing over Kassel, Germany. I don't know. Some German person can help me. The early on in the war, when these anti-aircraft guns were shot, the shells were basically like bullets, so you could get hit, and it wouldn't really matter. It could go through your wing. It could go through the plane. The plane could still fly, but then they invented flak. That word's made it into our lexicon. Don't give me no flak. This flak with these shells that had explosives in them and shrapnel. So when they would hit the wing... Shrapnel would go everywhere. There would be an explosion instantly. The wing could be busted up. The plane could crash. And this navigator says, one day we got hit with all this flak. And yet somehow it did not affect our plane. When we landed, we thought, this is a miracle. And they looked, and on their gas tank were 11 of these, these flak, this flak that had hit their gas tank, apparently. And they... As they, the, the men took these things off and they tried to detonate them or whatever, and they looked inside the shell and they were empty. There was no explosive stuff. There was no shrapnel. And in one of the shells, there was a note. There was this crumpled up piece of paper and a note that said, this is all we can do for now. This is all we can do for now. Some slave labor in a munitions camp was fighting the evil from the inside. They had no power to do anything except sabotage the weapons so that this flight crew could live. And this is what you're called to do. You wonder sometimes, does my life matter? Does my work matter? The apostle says the resurrection means, therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Because you know your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's all I can do now. There's so many ways if you start to offer your life to King Jesus. As agents of the new creation, you say, how do I do my work lovingly as if I were doing it for the king? I'm doing it as his ambassador. Whether I'm a physician or a nurse, whether I'm a teacher or a coach, I'm a lawyer, I'm a businessman, I'm a mother at home. I'm a construction worker, a plumber, or electrician. How do I do this work as if the king were doing it? With his resources, with him on my mind. It's all I can do for now We're people who push back on this darkness. Your faith is meant to be useful. You've got to remember this Miyagi principle of after, after, and God's aspirations are better than yours. Your life matters. I'm closing with this story that Matt Brown reminded me of. I've told it to you before, but I can't remember when, so I'm hoping you can't either. (laughs) But it's a great story about a man that Garrison Keillor tells. About a man who was being called to go to Chicago for a conference with one of his co-workers. It happens to be this co-worker was this, this lady that he had secret aspirations for this lady who was not his wife this lady who seemed to find him way more attractive and way more interesting than his wife did and he had a good cover we got to go to this conference in chicago together she was coming to pick him up but he knew he had secret intentions in his own heart 
And he couldn't shake the guilt of it. And as he's sitting waiting out inside of his yard, out in front of his house for her to pick him up, with adultery on his mind, he starts thinking about this, about this guilt. He looks up and down the street as he sits under the spruce tree and he says, you know, this neighborhood has been good for me. It's been good for my soul. And he starts to realize that the integrity of each life depends on the integrity of each other life. He starts to wonder, well, if, I, if I bail out on my wife and I destroy my family, what's to say that this woman won't trade me in at some point? In a way, adultery is nothing more than horse trading, he came to the conclusion. But as he was sitting there, he says, as I sat on the lawn looking down the street, I saw that we all depend on each other, and I saw that although I thought my sins could be secret, and that's what people in our time think, they say things about presidents like, it doesn't matter, it doesn't affect his office, his character doesn't matter, what he does in the privacy of his own home, that doesn't matter. Christians say, that's poppycock, which is a great word. What we do, what you believe in the privacy of your own heart affects the world. I saw that we depend on each other. I saw that although my sins could be secret, I thought that, they were actually no more secret than an earthquake. Your sins register on the communal Richter scale. I saw that my sins could be no more secret than an earthquake. All these houses and all these families, my infidelity would somehow shake them. They rattle the earth beneath them. It would somehow pollute the drinking water. It would make noxious gases come out of the ventilation system at the elementary school. He said, when I started to think when we scream in senseless anger at another, a little girl that we don't know several blocks away spills gravy on a white tablecloth. If I go to Chicago with this woman, he said, who is not my wife, somehow the school patrol will forget to guard the intersection and someone's child will be injured. A sixth grade teacher will say, who gives a rip? And she'll eliminate South America from geography. (laughs) And our minister will decide, what's the big deal? And I'm not going to give that sermon on the poor. Somehow my adultery will cause the man in the grocery store to say, to heck with the health department. The sausage was good yesterday. It certainly can't be any worse today. And by the end, he decides not to do it. And he realizes that each sin is another crack in the world. See, the cross convinces us that the things we think of as no big deal. It's no big deal if I while away my time on Pinterest with this sort of of consumer porn of looking at more and more life that I don't have but I need. That's no big deal. It's no big deal if I tell a lie. If I shade the truth nothing if i ignore god and i ignore my neighbor if i if i get richer and richer and every other people around me get poor and poor and i don't care about that that's no big deal each man for himself after all and the bible says your sin is an earthquake it's actually makes tremors for the world when adam's sin death came into the world and death we're told reigned from the time of adam to moses before there was even a law to condemn people but here's what's awesome Because all of us have enough sins to cause earthquakes for everybody around us. Starting with me. And to think that this Jesus says, my earthquake's bigger. I mean to shake the world, not so that its foundations crack, but so that its foundations are renewed. 
I mean to alter things so substantially that sin is eradicated entirely and you become different kinds of people who find it a joy to look after each other, who never forget God, who find it your great delight to listen to him and to follow what he says. I aim to retune the world. Will you believe me? Without faith, we're told it's impossible to please God for everyone must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And today, on this resurrection day, the God who's retuning the discordant world is offering you to be agents of this retuning, to bring music into the spheres of your life by giving yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, to the work of love, to the work of generosity, to the work of doing good work. Does your faith matter? Do you believe that there's a life of the world to come? That God has better aspirations than you do? The resurrection says all those things. And it's not just good advice. It's good news. Will you take your stand on it? Amen.